0: Up next, Authentically Detroit sits down with Kevin Davidson, Director of Design and Fabrication at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, to discuss their new exhibit, Detroit Jazz, The Legacy Continues, and its companion exhibit, Jazz Greats. But first, this week's hot takes come from Bridge Detroit. Prosecutor will not charge Detroit officers in Porter Burke's shooting death and Detroit to invest $9 million in parking lots for neighborhood businesses. Keep it locked. Authentically Detroit. Starts after these messages.
1: Founded in 2021, the Stottemeyer is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stottemeyer is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stottemeyer offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org.
2: Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroiters rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that ask the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit bridgedetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters for Detroiters.
0: Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello Detroit and the world, welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the WDET studios. We are a content partner to com. I'm Orlando Bailey.
3: And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. We
0: say thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people in the city of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms Today, we have the Director of Design and Fabrication at the Charles H. Wright Museum for African-American History. Here with us, Kevin Davidson. He's joining us. Donna and Kevin, how is this blessed day finding each of you? Um,
3: it's good for me. Yeah, I, I just, I'm tired. I've been up really, really, really early. Um, so um, Kevin has some news he might want to announce. Kevin, what's the, you, what's the news, Kevin? Kevin has a new brother-in-law. I guess I do, too. <laughs> oh, get oh, out! I,
4: yeah yes. my uh sister uh traveled to um Africa, and uh she'd been corresponding with, communicating with this uh guy sort of dating long distance and uh he lives in nigeria so she she went to Nigeria uh and got hitched meet him for the first time and yes got hitched oh if this don't
0: sound like a good time storyline i don't know what does <laughs>
4: I, I picked her up from the airport this morning and she was really really happy so. and she was a married yeah. woman and a married woman she's getting used to it oh wow
0: that's amazing if yeah. she should hear this number one you should send this episode i will to her i will so <laughs> that she can hear us say congratulations yes, that's yes, exciting yeah,
3: you know what definitely. he um he sold their wedding clothes. Oh, so wow. he um he's a tailor. Yeah. And he was out. able to mm-hmm. put together their wedding clothes and all that cool stuff. So we've got pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, congratulations, Cynthia. We're happy yeah. for you. Congratulations. Um, congratulations. I, don't I just don't know what her last know. name is because there are just so many letters. I'm like, mm-hmm. how, I'm just going to have to call you <laughs> Cynthia Davidson. <so laughs> you like, teach me how to pronounce this. I'm
0: going <laughs> to call her Cynthia E. <laughs> e. I'm like, what does it start with? Yes. Cynthia E. We're going to call her Cynthia. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Oh, <laughs> our yeah. listeners have put together that. Uh, Kevin Davidson, he's been a guest on our show before. But Kevin Davidson is the husband of Donna Givens Davidson. So it's was a lot of love in the studio tonight. <laughs> yeah, I just love I love wife. seeing <laughs> these two together. Yeah. Uh both of them are amazing, do doing things in their own right. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's we're happy to have you back on, Kevin.
4: Thank you. Thank you. It is so good to be here in this the you know, the legendary W D E T Studios, you know. In front of the Do, doesn't it feel so like real radio? When it, you does, come it does. It does. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you know our focus is on jazz because yeah. in the eighties, you know, WDET was my motor. You really? know, what I mean, I listened to DET all day long. You know, listen to jazz all day long. Listen to Ed Love and um, the famous Ed Love. Mm-hmm, yeah. And uh, you know, that's how I found out was what was going on in the clubs, and you know was performing and all of that. so
3: Kevin says clubs, he means jazz clubs. Jazz oh, clubs, um, yeah. So Orlando, <laughs> uh, wh- how are you this vacation day? Yeah. It's like one of your last days <laughs> off and you came in to do some work. Thank you. <laughs> of
0: course. I wasn't going to miss it. Um, <laughs> I I am doing well. Um, resting, sleeping, binge watching. Um, I, wish some, I wish somebody had warned me about Euphoria um, <laughs> on HBO. I got into that and... It's so inappropriate, but it's it's. I think it's inappropriate mm. because it shows us a level of realism and truth that, mm. if we really sit with it and contend with it it is, it, it is uncomfortable. So I've watched that. Uh, I finished uh, House of the Dragon. <laughs> you know black people like to say House of Dragons that's I saw what I say yeah. the- that's what I
3: say and what is it without the S there's more than one dragon Orlando. House of the Dragon
0: uh, I finished it and I can't wait for season 2 it was really it was really well done I hope yeah. I hope they keep it up I was really disappointed in how they ended the Game of Thrones franchise mm-hmm. the original Game of Thrones on HBO but they're, they're making up for it with this storytelling the only thing that is really getting on my nerves about House of the Dragon is that it's so dark I'm like can HBO Turn up the brightness I can't see (laughs) What's going on Like it's really Like really dark And shadow Donna do you watch it? Oh we 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 did We
3: watched it We watched it In real time I was um, You know I'm such a Game of Thrones fan And um, This is so much different But I really do love it I think that it um, Gives you a whole Different side of storytelling Yeah um, That I didn't know I needed until I saw it And you know It really does come down to So many themes One of them is What is a good woman Right and, um, you know, since I've never been somebody who was going to fulfill the stereotypical role of a good woman, you know, stay at home, watch the kids. Barefoot the doors, and pregnant. Barefoot and pregnant. That's just <laughs> never been me. Um, but it really does, you know, do some gender bender kinds of things there that I think are really interesting. Um, as well as, you know, there was a lot more intermixing of races this um, mm-hmm. in House of Dragon than there was in Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, it's some black Targaryens of the Valorian mm-hmm. bloodline. Mm-hmm. Valerian, excuse me, the Valerian bloodline, yeah, I mean which is it. and they really had power.
3: Cool. They they they, 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 didn't, they didn't show Corliss
0: up. Nor was not to you be played know. with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's right. Exactly, you know. In,
3: in, in Game of Thrones, yeah. I think they were enslaved. It was like, mm. oh yes, we see they black were. people. Right, and they, they are were. enslaved and they got free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that yeah. seems like, like the, the story we always tell. But I enjoyed the story. In the, Game,
0: the original Game of Thrones, they were of the Dorn tribe or the I forget. But it was, yeah, but they were not, like, in power. No, they, yeah. it's, it's great right. to see them in power. Yeah, so I've been, I've been resting and, you know, soul searching and thinking mm-hmm. and writing and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the thing that we, we're, I think we're supposed to do on vacations. So right. it's been great. a good time, y'all. All right, y'all, it's time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. For Hot Takes, prosecutor won't charge Detroit officers in Porter Burks' shooting death. Uh, This is a follow-up to a story that we covered a couple weeks ago. Detroit police officers involved in a fatal shooting of a man going through a mental health crisis in October will not be charged. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy announced a decision uh, Wednesday in uh, the death of 20-year-old Porter Burks of Detroit, concluding that the officers acted in self-defense and in defense of others. Kim Worthy, in a statement called Burks' death, Truly tragic, noting that the officers involved spent a significant amount of time trying to get Burks, who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, to drop a knife he was welding. Burks suddenly ran at them with the knife and covered the distance between them in approximately three seconds. Worthy said in the Wednesday statement, eyewitnesses to the shooting were interviewed and indicated that the police did all they could to de-escalate the situation before Mr. Burks charged at the police. Unfortunately, Mr. Burks was fatally shot by the officers in self-defense and in the defense of others. Donna, I remember when we talked about this originally, it was, uh, you know, as always, as this kind of story evokes, you know, emotion, right? It was yeah. an emotionally charged conversation. And we, we we did not know what the prosecutor would do because no one knows what Kim Worthy I was not would do. shocked. Yeah. So what say you, Donna? Well, I
3: mean, I I wasn't shocked because the reality is um, when you look at the structure of the response, it was uh, a tragedy waiting to happen. I have never seen people in uniform de-escalate anything. If I'm having (laughs) a mental health crisis and you show up with your uniforms and guns and it's about 10 of you around me, I'm going to feel like I am under attack. Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel threatened, especially if he's a black man. You're just going to feel threatened because that is how your brain works. Um, She says, and they say the police did everything that they could do. I would say they did everything that they were trained to do. They have not got mental health training. Mm -hmm. Um, The ACLU and others are saying that we don't want police officers to respond to mental health crises. It's unfortunate that if somebody is having a family member In crisis, and they call 911, they send the police and not people who are trained to um, de-escalate the situation. And, you know, in every police department, you have hostage negotiators. You have people who do have de-escalation training, but those aren't the folks who show up. And so they show up, even if they said all the right things, their presence and the way they were present in that situation create a, a threat. And they don't know how to read his body language and other things to understand what's about to happen. So I think that um, I I think it's Los Angeles that just voted to stop sending police officers to mental health calls. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see the city of Detroit do the same thing. I'm not certain that charging these officers with a crime would result in a conviction. So I'm not certain it's a good use of taxpayer dollars and it's really not a solution. The solution has to be that we um, find ways to support families and support people who have mental health issues and also really do a good job trying to understand the psychology. The other thing I want to talk about is this whole um, narrative around people charging at police officers. I mean, every time somebody is shot by a police officer, you hear that they are charging at them and they're moving with inhuman speed. or Because, you know, I mean, this guy, he's fast, right? He In approximately three seconds, he covered what distance? Whoa, that's pretty good, right? Um, You know, I think sometimes people can portray a defensive response as an aggressive response it's hard to know the difference but i'm tired of the language that they charged at police officers and therefore we had to kill them um it feels very much like something you would say about a pit bull dog and not a human being Um, i hope that we give our officers better training in order to keep a safe distance from somebody wielding a weapon such that they cannot charge at them in such a way you know i mean Maybe you have Jesse Owens out there with that knife, but I think that it's safe to say that there's other possible solutions. And I'm not blaming these officers. I'm blaming the structure, but I'm also looking at the way that we describe these really, really tragic incidents. Because language is important. It's mm-hmm. it kind of dehumanizes the person who comes charging at me and you know, and it kind of builds this narrative of fear that is always present before people get shot, especially black men get shot by police. And yeah. as long as that fear can be believable or palpable, and we use language like that, then it's always going to be justified.
0: Mm. Attorney Jeffrey Figer filed a $50 million wrongful death lawsuit in October on behalf of Bergs' family. And so while uh, the prosecutor will not bring up any criminal charges, it will be interesting to see how this plays out in civil court Yeah. Um, I don't think Jeffrey Figer takes on cases that he doesn't believe he can't win. And so I'm wondering um, what he sees here.
3: You know, um, I don't know, because, you know, when you're suing um, institutions like the Detroit Police Department, you're not necessarily trying to win in court. You're just trying to win a settlement sometimes. Um, So, you know, are there attorneys who sometimes prosecute or who who sometimes file cases with the goal of negotiating a settlement Absolutely. Are there facts in the case that he believes he should take to trial? We'll see. Mm -hmm. I'm interested.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And uh, we should note that subsequent uh, this shooting, there has been a shooting uh, involving the Detroit police once again killing someone, a woman actually, who was in a a mental health crisis. Was she charging at them? I don't I don't have the details around that, but uh on our break I'll look and I'll uh I'll give it back to you. Uh but British Detroit did um did write about it and what we're seeing now, especially, and I don't know if it's just a sign of the times, a sign of like what's happening externally, is an uptick in these mental health calls that police are continually being asked to to show up for. And so we do have uh, police uh, chief, James White, on record saying that there needs to be more training. And we're trying to figure out what exactly does that look like? Um and where will the resources come from to do that?
3: You know, when people talk about training, 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 it's always training. You know, somebody says something um, racist, and you send them to sensitivity them to classes, and you send Poor them people. to Poor people, we're going to train them right. out of um, You know, I right. think that really you have to have more policies and rules Absolutely. that you're going to enforce because people change their behavior when they have to, and not when you tell them it's a really good idea and you train them to I think it um, goes. out I, I think something. And a statistic I saw that I think is really important is that about fifty percent of all police involved killings are with people who are disabled or mentally ill. So um, it, it, it happens over and over and over again. And again, like
0: one young the, man's name. Uh, what's his name? Elijah McClain? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So um, you know, this is this is what happens. Um, we need to do a better job treating and providing support for people who are dealing with mental health issues. Mental health is a um, health care condition that should never be untreated in the way that it is. But so often we are not providing adequate treatment inside of our community. Um, we need to do a better job as a community getting people to the treatment that they need, but also understanding that, um, you know, the systems need to do a better job providing quality treatment when you bring people in. And I, what are the emergency um, procedures?
0: Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you there. I think though, uh, the powers that be in this city see the alternative of what you are talking about as anti-police, even though it really is not, right? When I when I when I think about the structure and I think about the police chief and I think about who the police chief reports to, the police chief reports to and serves up the pleasure of the mayor of the city of Detroit. Mike Duggan is a former prosecutor, right? Mm-hmm. His for his last two deputy mayors, including the current one, have been police officers, James Craig and now former deputy police chief Todd Bedison. There is something to be said about the 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 uh, the structural affection mm-hmm. that we have for police in the city of Detroit that I think. In, in many instances, especially in instances like this, is misplaced when we critique and we provide narr- a different narrative around what policy change could look like, what training could look like. I don't even know if we need to train officers. We, got, we have service organizations here in the city of Detroit that, that have been doing this work for years. Give them a contract.
3: Well, you know, we do. and they, We do. But, I mean, the thing is I'm not going to train your racism out of you. I'm not going to train your hate out of you. Training is not going to fix what um, is structurally broken. And I think you raised a really good point about Mike And I think also it's important to reflect back that even in 1967, we had in Detroit a reformed police officer who was reporting to a reformed mayor, a police chief rather, reporting to a reformed mayor. And he really was trying to enforce reforms. And under his watch, you had the um, the hotel, what's the name of the hotel? The Algiers. Algiers Hotel. Under his watch, you had the police brutality at the, um, the the Blind Pig. The problem with reforming policing is that it really is not controlled by the chief or even by the mayor. There is a culture in there that speaks to certain types of behavior over and over again all over the world, and certainly also all, all over the United States. And if we don't want to if we're not going to get in there and figure out how to reframe things and how to fix that culture and how to hold people accountable. And, of course, the thin blue line is one problem, but the police union is another. Um, it, th- this is where unions can sometimes be detrimental when they protect public servants from being accountable to the public they are supposed to serve. There was a time when the Detroit um, Teachers Union did that. Um, teachers could get away with almost anything because union provisions – kept them from being accountable. We've got to figure out how to um, get at this. I don't think we're going to do it anytime soon, but I think there are a lot of great ideas that reformers have put out there, and I'd love to uh, maybe bring a reformer on in the near future so that we can have those conversations. Because if you keep on hey, doing... Aaron
0: Keefe, we're talking to you. That's Come right. On. If
3: you keep on doing what you've always done, you're going to keep on getting the same result. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, listen, guys, we have to take a quick break. We know that we said we had two hot takes. We're going to figure out how to get the second one in. But stay tuned. Keep a lock. We're going to talk a little bit about this investment of $9 million in parking lots for neighborhood businesses. We'll be right back.
1: Founded in 2021, the Stottemeyer is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stottemeyer is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stottemeyer offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org.
4: Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to make that dream a reality. Located inside the Stottemeyer, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344.
0: All right, y'all. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. For Hot Takes, Detroit to invest $9 million in parking lots for neighborhood businesses. The City Council approved a contract Tuesday with the Detroit Building Authority to fund the expansion of parking spaces for businesses in select neighborhoods targeted for investment by the city. Detroit planning officials said over the next two years, vacant land owned by the city or the Detroit Land Bank Authority will be converted into small surface parking lots adjacent to... Commercial corridors. The contract is being paid for with American Rescue Plan Act funding. Donna, what say you?
3: Um, you know, about um, almost seven years ago, when I started at ECN, um, I started attending meetings, and people started talking about stormwater management and green infrastructure, and redesigning the ordinance around parking lots. And that um, redesign ordinance never came to be. But in that redesign, you saw things like bioswales, and you saw things that really helped protect the. Um, the, the climate that impervious protect the earth surfaces. and impervious surfaces. We talked about, we talked about you about know, um, yes, you talked about permeable pavers. And so as the city is considering this, as these lots are going in, it's almost like we know in our left hand we should be doing this. We should be doing this. But then we think, yeah, but well, we don't have time. And so we're going to put $9 million of new parking lots in. I hope and I pray that that $9 million is not contributing to Um, a combined sewer overflow issue in our community, even while we are charging people almost $600 per impervious acre per month. Um, Because of course the city doesn't have to pay those fees, but the burden is then, you know, maintained on us. So I'm concerned about the um, intent there. I also, you know, I haven't seen a study that documents that there is so much business that you need parking lots in all of those areas. And so I'm hoping that city council actually reviewed evidence that this is going to increase business traffic because a lot of parking lots also sit empty. And, um, and and I think if not, it's a waste of time. There are many, many other things that people want to see happen in their neighborhoods.
0: Uh, this is an investment that will go in areas that have completed uh, the city's process for neighborhood framework plans. So this is Going and strategic planning, mm-hmm. strategic the you know in accordance where the strategic neighborhood fund dollars are going. So East Warren, we'll see it. Gratiot Seven Mile, we'll see it. Northwest Grand River, we'll see it. McNichols and San Juan, we'll see it. Uh, and you know all of the other SNF neighborhoods. Um, it's interesting uh, to me uh, that not nine million dollars, nine million dollars, mm-hmm. just seems like a, a a significant amount of money to invest in, in parking. I really do hope that um, our climate imperatives are top of mind when doing this.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice if we had a director of sustainability who had the power and influence to ensure that um, climate is front and center in every decision. <laughs>
0: All right, y'all, uh, we're going to talk about this uh, more, more, but we're going to transition. But before we transition, we want to let you know that if you have topics discussed that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can always hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email us at Authentically at gmail. Dot com. This week, we have a very special guest, one of my favorite people I've ever interviewed. I mean, I had the, a really good time interviewing Kevin Davidson. Donna's husband, who's the director of design and fabrication at the Charles H. Wright Museum. Detroit Jazz, The Legacy Continues, highlights Detroit jazz musicians who also made an impact on the local, national, and international jazz scene. Wright Museum staff built Detroit Jazz as a companion to the Jazz Greats exhibit, focusing on the Detroit artists who have lived and worked among us. Amid racial segregation, these musicians express themselves and offer solace and escape through their music. This exhibit highlights a few of the many Detroit musicians and venues that influence jazz music. It's available for viewing at the right until February 28th. 2023 kevin welcome to authentically detroit thank you thank you it's good to be here all right first things first what expired inspired these two uh jazz exhibits that are being erected at the right or that have been erected at the right
4: well you know we are um you know always kicking around you know new ideas uh for uh, exhibits that we bring in or that we build from scratch um And we were approached by Bank of America. And uh, they have a collection of photographs by a number uh, of significant um, national and international photographers um, featuring um, images of jazz greats throughout history. And um, so... We decided to bring that in, and, uh, you know, we uh, initially were asked to put it in our AT&T gallery, which is our biggest um, changing gallery, but the exhibit is a small exhibit, so it wouldn't fit. So we decided to put it in our medium-sized gallery, which was formerly referred to as the Chase Gallery, um, and create our own Detroit-focused exhibit in the AT&T gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's pretty much how it, how it came about. You know, mm-hmm. when, we,
0: when we talk about music in Detroit, we talk a lot about EDM music, right? We mm-hmm. talk a lot about the legacy of Barry Gordy yeah. and Motown Records, but we don't talk a lot about jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the Detroit footprint
4: in the jazz genre? Let me give you a little bit of history first on that. Um, during the turn of the century, um, a lot of musicians who were living in the South um, and living right there in in uh, New Orleans, the birthplace of jazz, you know, were experiencing um, you know Jim Crow following uh, the first Reconstruction, and so. You know you had uh lynchings uh you know black men had the uh opportunity to vote for the first time, and they were electing representation going to Congress and building communities um men and women together, black communities and uh there was a reign of terror that followed that, you know once. You know the Union armies left the South, and um, Reconstruction came to an end. Uh, And so, Southern governments, uh, you know, started instituting the Black Codes. Um, And probably, what was most impactful was the lynchings that went on in the South, that drove uh, African Americans to the North as part of the Great Migration, and. Musicians uh, followed that path, coming to Detroit, and Detroit was a safe place. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you talk about the footprint, Mm -hmm. these uh, musicians, uh, like um, the Buddy Bolden band that came here right around uh, 1900 uh, from New Orleans, um, sort of, uh, uh, they got real comfortable here because, you know, you could hang out on Hastings Street uh, in Black Bottom Paradise Valley at uh, jazz clubs. And, uh, you know, you had uh, uh, the Gotham Hotel and the Paradise Theater and others um, that were designed for black people and their patronage was black people. And so they could escape uh, the racism of the South, come to the North, play in these clubs uh, make money, make a living, um, and, and live their lives freely. Uh, and, uh, and so Detroit became a kind of uh, incubator mm. mm-hmm. as a result for jazz musicians.
3: Right, You know, I, I always think about Detroit's um, buildup of these black communities, these safe mm. spaces, and, you know, we know all of Detroit wasn't safe. But when you have people who are being, you know, forced migration, right? We look at forced migration in other nations, and it's like, oh, my goodness, these people are fleeing terror. When you have this forced migration, you're not talking about moving to, um, you know, um, utopia. You're Mm -hmm. talking about moving to a place where you are relatively more safe. Mm -hmm. But one thing that was also different Mm -hmm. about Detroit was the auto industry, right? Absolutely. The fact that Detroiters were able to build up a certain amount Mm -hmm. of community capital so we could— maintain this, and we could actually pay to see musicians.
4: Mm, $5 a day.
3: <laughs> so can you talk about the, the difference between, say, Detroit and some of the other places? Um, was there a distinction between Detroit and, say, Baltimore or Detroit and Milwaukee, or were all northern cities the same?
4: The Detroit had the distinction of um, being the home of the automotive industry. And so when Henry Ford put the call out, um specifically to the South, um indicating that, you know, you can come here right now you are making uh 75 cents a day, a dollar a day. You can come here and make five dollars a day, you know, and really make a living. And um and so you had Dodge and and uh what is now GM and and of course Ford Motor Company um providing jobs to African-Americans. And so, you know, people like my grandfather, you know, uh, relocated from Alabama to Detroit because of jobs in the automotive industry. That's really the big distinction. And, and um, you know, we were able to build a middle class here in Detroit and buy homes and um, really kind of uh, build a life that uh, – That was just impossible anywhere else.
3: You know, when people, I want to get it back into the jazz, but when people Mm -hmm. look at the city of Detroit and they reflect back on that period, I think they think we were all in Black Bottom Mm -hmm. in a place we were all displaced. And um, that displacement was horrific, and it should also be noted, right? Mm -hmm. But you also had black people. I think at one time there were 18 black hospitals in the city of Detroit. You had a chain of black drugstores in the city of Mm -hmm. Detroit. My mother talked about having skating rinks that were black owned in the city of Detroit Mm -hmm. and going to little fish shops and every other kind of business that was black owned in the city. And the businesses that you spoke about were all Black-owned businesses mm-hmm. for the most part, right? They were, and so there was this power building, this sense of, mm-hmm. and you know, Detroiters are still like that, right? Right. We're kind of cocky. <laughs> <laughs> we we feel like we own this city, mm-hmm. but even when we didn't have a black mayor, even when we were still right. being very segregated, there was this sense of "I am" yes. in certain parts of Detroit. That's right. So, um, but I do want to hear about the musicians.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to hear about the musicians, and you know, a point that you that you made, which is you know, really glaring for me is that it was black folks that made it possible for our southern musicians to come here and make a living.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Right. That is that right. that's blowing my mind. Right.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: right? We can yeah. make we can make a living exploring and expressing our artistry, mm-hmm. our improvisational artistry. I mean, when I think about jazz, I think about improvisation. Yes. I think about spontaneity. Absolutely. I think about black. I think about, you know, uh a nonlinear line. Yeah,
4: yeah. Um, you know, some of those people who came to Detroit, uh, you know, in search of employment in the automotive industry, you know, started businesses. And, uh, you know, people got together, opened those clubs, and, um, and so it became a haven, you know, for black musicians, black people opening clubs for black musicians and audiences. You know. So,
3: who who were who some of the innovators in Detroit?
4: Um, you know, there's a a a family uh, of musicians called the McKinney Cotton Pickers. You know, wow. the name? Yeah, alone, my <laughs> gosh, what? Okay, and I had assumed that there was a connection between, let's say, Harold. M- Mckinney and and Gaylene, his daughter Mckinney, but there is no relationship, from what I understand. Um, but you know, he was an innovator. Those Mckinney cotton pickers were innovators. His daughter, right now, Gaylene, is an innovator. She sure, is. you know, so uh, it's it's like a a tradition that has been passed down. And
3: uh, she's um, our own Sheila E in Detroit, She right? is, right? Right, you know, listen, Kayla plays those <laughs> drums, yes, all right? Yes, she does, <laughs> yes, she does, you
4: know. And, and uh, you know, we we go out and uh, support them, you know, at these different spots. Donna and I, you know, we love it. Um, and uh, you know, you've got let's say Mary and Hayden.
0: Yeah, Marion Hayden is a, mm-hmm. a prominent feature in the exhibit t- exhibit. Talk yes. talk a little bit about and she's a she's a bassist here, yes. based here in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Her children are musicians. Talk about yeah. Marion and the imprint that she's has. I mean,
4: Marion, uh, you know, she's phenomenal. She uh is is, you know, the number one bassist. You know, she is she brings a skill level, a knowledge, a craft that that's just second to none, you know, and Ron Carter, the, the, the bassist, you know, when you think about jazz and let's say John Coltrane on the saxophone, you know, it is Ron Carter on the bass, on, the bass. on that level. And uh, he served as a mentor to her. You know you
0: know it's, it's really interesting because you've mentioned uh you've mentioned two women mm-hmm. um so far and mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh the the gender uh diversity mm-hmm. in the genre of jazz when we think about women in jazz we often think of vocalists right mm-hmm. we think mm-hmm. about Billie Holiday we may think about Ella Fitzgerald or Pearl Bailey you know you mm-hmm. know a lot of the greats who yes. uh were vocalists but we rarely Talk about and think about women who have also pioneered on the instrumental side. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. I mean, it's an intentional choice to feature Marion Hayes. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Uh, You know, um, Gaylene and Marion are trailblazers, you know, because uh, way back in the 80s, maybe even before that, they started this group called Straight Ahead. Um, and I think Mickey Braden, who's a friend of mine, who uh, she she was involved in get, getting them started. You know, I used to hang out. You know, we used to hang out at, uh, back then in the '80s.
3: Is uh, that who you painted?
4: No, no, that's a uh, that's a another that's a saxophonist. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, you know, it's all woman group. You know, and uh, and and so they have. You know, influence others because, again, they have gone on to become mentors to men and women Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, sort of raising up the next level of great uh, male and female jazz musicians, you know, and just being out there. I think they are wonderful uh, role models and examples for young women who um, are interested and getting into that craft, you know, and, and doing it on the level that they do it.
3: Yeah, you know, um, I apparently I, I don't remember everybody I knew growing up, but mm-hmm. Michelle May actually mm-hmm. was a Kresge fellow, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I grew up with Michelle, and she is a violinist, mm-hmm. and she has an all-female group, um, and they're all, they're all mm-hmm. playing the strings, and so um, it's it is amazing to mm-hmm. see the inclusion of black women in music in Detroit, but Detroit has also been a place where you had a lot of black women pioneers in Mm -hmm. so many ways. Um, So what is the difference between Mm -hmm. Detroit jazz? Is there a distinction or is it all just jazz? Is there something we did that helped innovate across the nation?
4: You know, the one thing um, that is certain is that if you're somewhere, if you're in New York, for instance, and, you know, these jazz musicians from Detroit come in there, the expectation is that They are the baddest.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yes. Oh, man, I love it. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. More with Kevin Davison Mm -hmm. on the new jazz exhibit at the Charles H. Wright Museum. When we come back, keep it locked.
1: Founded in 2021, the Stottemeyer is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stottemeyer is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stottemeyer offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the Neighborhood Tech Hub, and more. Members who are residents of the East Side have access to exclusive services in the Wellness Network. Join today and live well, play well, be well. Visit ecndetroit.org.
2: Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroiters rooted by community priorities started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Henderson the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper local perspectives that ask the hard questions brings accountability and searches out real solutions it's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization visit bridgedetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit, by Detroiters, for Detroiters. Welcome back to
0: Authentically Detroit. We are here with the Director of Design and Fabrication for the Charles H. Wright Museum for African American History, Kevin Davidson. And we're talking about the new jazz exhibit that has been erected and that will be there until February. We were talking about uh, the indelible footprint that uh, Detroit has had on jazz. And before the break, you talked a little bit about uh, the the expectation on Detroit musicians, if they show up in a bar in New York or New Orleans or Baltimore or D.C., uh, we, we better bring that fire. <laughs> Who set that bar, man? Like, I know, I, and you know, it's so funny. You know, I always I, I, I think of Detroit as really just this uh, contemporary mecca for all kinds of platforms mm. and art forms uh music uh house music gospel music mm-hmm. right uh our our jazz scene you know i don't know if this is true but you know bakers has the title uh detroit the world's oldest jazz club i don't know if that is It is true it's yeah. true yeah, yeah okay. absolutely yeah so like yeah. huh we we've done a lot mm-hmm. yeah we've done a absolutely. lot absolutely so talk to me about um who who was the chief curator on this this exhibit and uh, where the materials and things came for from and, you know, uh, a major
4: takeaway you've had in getting this thing up. Um, the curator's name is Jennifer Evans. Um, and uh, she started, you know, doing the research, uh, really kind of involving all of us and drawing, you know, from our experiences and knowledge of jazz. Harold McKinney's um, wife, uh, this is the M- McKinney Cotton Picker yeah, family. Well, this is Harold McKinney because the Cotton Pickers are a little different from Okay, so this is a different. Yeah. Okay. Who's Harold McKinney? Yeah, Harold McKinney, um, you know, he's a uh, he was a jazz pianist who um, was a huge mentor for the uh, Detroit area jazz artist and he was an innovator uh, in his own right. Um was around Detroit a long time um, and and really birthed a lot of um, Detroit uh, jazz musicians who worked with him. And, um, you know, he had uh, people like, you know, Marcus Belgrave and uh, uh, others um, who performed with him. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were established jazz musicians, you know, in their own right. Um, But, you know, you create a kind of creative synergy, you know. Uh, It's it's something that just defeats the whole jazz scene, you know, and uh, great musicians um, come out of that. Like I said, it becomes an incubator. And so you go to these clubs and, you know, there are these jam sessions that that, uh, go on. And so everybody... You know, you got your axe. You come in there, and you, you know, you just start playing in this this jam session, and you start learning from the best. So it's it a shedding. nice mix.
0: Yeah, they shed yeah.
4: yeah. So you
3: know, there's, um, as you know, there's a lot of controversy right now this time of year um, about some aspects of some of the politics, um, and I think sometimes that tends to overshadow some of the strengths and the resources that people can get from the museum. So I'm not going to ask you to comment on the politics, but well, mm-hmm. what are some of the great things that are still happening at the right, the exhibits, and what are some of the changes that are coming underway that will actually help continue the, um, the um, legacy of Dr. Wright?
4: Your uh, mentor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, I think beyond all of the politics, you know, and the back and forth with all of that, You know, we are in the process of, you know, uh, changing our facility. Uh, There's been a lot of investment in it. Um, You know, we are changing, um, you know, spaces and creating uh, spaces for uh, families and children. So we're looking at some huge investment there. Uh, we're bringing technology and a lot more interactivity to the museum's exhibit exhibits that are coming up in the future, and uh, so you know it's 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 going to be exciting. It's yeah. going to be exciting, and that's that's really what I want you to look out for.
3: Yeah, I, mean, I think it's important that we um, support our institutions, mm-hmm. even. Those people, you know, you're always going to have protests, and there's a Mm -hmm. role for protests when people want to change. But I think it's important that we support our institutions. Um, I've been around um, many places lately, and there is no city like Detroit that has a museum like the right. And it's important that all of us work together to try to make sure that um, what's happening there, that we're seeing it, and we're supporting Mm -hmm. it, and we're becoming members. And um, certainly, you know, it's important that people get heard. So I'm not trying to silence anybody, but I think it is important also to understand that these changes are going to make us all look good. And you're going to be honoring new people. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, um, I don't know if you can talk about any of the future exhibits or if that's still under wraps while you are um, working on the marketing.
4: Yeah, we're still, uh, you know, formulating a lot of that. We just know that we want to incorporate a lot more technology and interactivity and, you know, make exhibitions educational, uh, immersive, um, and fun uh, for the visitor. And, you know, we've begun that process. I've been working the last few days on a few years, updating our core exhibit and adding technology to that. Uh, so when you go th- through the core exhibit now, you'll see these air touch buttons. Uh, so it's hands off and, um, those are positions where the interactives are. Um, and, uh, so we're looking at making a, a greater investment in technology in the CORE exhibit mm-hmm. and really upgrading um, areas throughout the CORE. It's, it's our greatest asset. Yeah, yeah. Let me is. ask you one
3: more question. You've mm-hmm. been there for how long? That was
4: Forty my question. years. Forty years. And 40 so in that a 40 years time, Dr. Wright. a pupil <laughs> yes, of Dr.
3: Wright, right, right, Dr. Wright you studied me. under him. Yes. And um, yeah. when you were honored earlier this year, they mm-hmm. called you the right man. And yes. one of the things that really moved me. Um, as your wife, was mm-hmm. when one of his daughters said that the museum wouldn't have survived as mm-hmm. long as it has and would not be the museum it is without you. Yeah. And that's a testament to your role.
4: Yes.
0: How do you receive that? How do you receive those words? How does that resonate
4: with you? Ah, it's just warm and wonderful. I mean, particularly coming from his daughter, you know, that really warmed my heart to hear that. And, you know, you just kind of uh, do your thing and you go on. Um, you may not necessarily be focused on the impact that you're having, um, but I remember having a conversation with Dr. Wright's first w- wife um, over on the boulevard, and, um, you know, she told me that they'd never done exhibits like what I was doing at that point, you know, and, and she, she was one of my uh, greatest supporters. You know, um, and, you know, I just continue from there and, and, and innovating and uh, bringing um, different approaches to designing exhibitions. And, you know, just um, taking us higher mm. in the process. So mm. the right man. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Is that's the right
3: still cool. telling the same story? Is it telling the right stories? How has it changed in that 40-year period?
4: Um, I think we are still telling a lot of the same stories. Um, Dr. Wright's focus uh, was largely on educating African-American children to their history because he felt like it was critical for them to know about themselves and know their place in the world. Um, And so uh our core exhibit right now is it i mean that's the focus of it it is our history you know spanning the beginning of time on Something. through Oof. you know uh to this day to this day, to this so day. it is <laughs> significant um and so you know we we continue to incorporate even when we do uh fine art exhibits you know there is that um history component that is there. So that's something that has continued on um, from the founding of the museum to the current
0: yeah. time. Before, before we wrap it up, I want to ask you a question mm-hmm. about jazz mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, sort of bring it full circle. Yeah. Um, is jazz a dying art form? Do we see this, this art form being passed on from generation to generation are millennials taking it up? Are Gen Zers taking it up? I mean, mm-hmm. where do you, what do you, what does the future hold for this amazing platform? Is it just a, is it just you know, a Gen X or baby boomer kind of thing? And it's going, you know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see a lot of younger jazz musicians anymore. In my generation, there are some amazing jazz musicians mm-hmm. in the millennial generation, but mm-hmm. I don't, you know. What do you think? How is it? Where does it, where does it land for you?
4: i think um uh jazz is still alive um I think there's a lot of uh you know as I mentioned earlier um mentoring that's gone on with uh these you know young jazz musicians who are in college uh some in high school um and you know there's a tradition that's continuing on, and I mentioned you know a number of the people who are are you know still uh, mentoring these young jazz musicians on a commercial side? Um, you know there are I I, I really kind of refer to them as successful pockets of jazz um, areas where jazz is really strong um, and where there's a lot of opportunity because there are jazz musicians we went to the blue Llama, to see uh, this trombonist i cannot remember his name right now but you know he's a relatively young guy selling a lot of albums nice. a lot of exactly. music you That's know saranza spalding yeah uh, yeah who, exactly who, who
0: just left harvard she's right. teaching at harvard right mm-hmm. right but then you see yeah. ralph
3: armstrong mm-hmm. yeah. and ralph armstrong is such a you know amazing artist Mm -hmm. And he's standing up talking about the impact of the pandemic on him Mm -hmm. and the fact that he can't make money on Apple music and on, you know, all of the, um, you know, online digital music. And so I think we have a need to decide if we want to preserve art. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Um, We're not investing in art. We we, um, have found a way to listen to it really inexpensively, and it's coming at the expense of artists. So he actually sold us a CD. (laughs) <laughs> and we yeah. had to go out and buy a CD player so we could play it. Right. <laughs> I'm not lying. It was it's like, okay, true. now what are we going to do with this? <laughs> they don't put them on your computer anymore. And yeah. so when you look at the way technology is moving, it's also making it really difficult to provide the kind it of support is. you need. Yeah. Um. And I'm not sure how you're going to get over that hump, but it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, the Blue Llama is an amazing jazz club. It is. Um, we're now building a lot of new jazz clubs. We go to Burt's and we go to um, baker's Cliff Bell's around. and Baker's mm-hmm. and, the you know, Dirty, dirty Dogs. Dog. But there's not a lot of venues and I don't know what the venues are paying, but I think, you know, as a culture, as a society, we have to decide whether music itself is worth preserving Mm -hmm. because very few artists are making money making music. And the other thing I'm seeing, and I don't know if you're going to disagree with this, is that there are fewer black artists in mm. jazz than mm. there were in the past. Um, and it may be... I've been to uh, these
0: jazz festivals. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. I mean, because I think that, that, you know, when you talk about people who have to make money, maybe it becomes a kind of thing that you don't do anymore because there's not enough money in it. Mm.
4: Mm. Mm. Well, the other thing about, about jazz is, um, you know, when you think about Motown, for instance, you know, um, and the musicians who made the music, those were jazz artists. Mm-hmm. That's right. All of them. And so, you know, Holland it's... Holland Dozier Holland. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so um, a lot of the, the R&B we listen to, a lot of the uh, rap... Uh, uh, is deeply threaded. It's deeply yes. threaded. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It is incorporated. Yes. So uh, it kind of has a... It has tentacles in a life of its own. Yeah.
0: Man. Mm-hmm. Well, Kevin Davison, I want to tell you thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always yeah. a pleasure having you on, mm-hmm. and it's always a fascinating conversation. Go see uh detroit jazz a legacy continues a new exhibit at the charles mm-hmm. h wright museum of african-american history the exhibit is open now through mm-hmm. february 28th and if you have topics that you want discussed on our podcast hit us up on our socials at authentically detroit or you can email us at authentically at gmail.com it is time for shout outs <laughs> donna Givens davidson do you have any shout outs
3: Shout out to all the cooks for Thanksgiving meals. <laughs> shout out to all the families that got together and shout out to the people who hold us accountable for um, the term Thanksgiving and reminding us on what it really means. That we're talking about settler colonialism mm-hmm. and that we have got to be consistent in our support. So I want to come up with a new and word in our rate. <laughs> yes. Um we you know, I want to come up with a new word that is not Thanksgiving. Because just like we have renamed Indigenous Language um, Day, we've got to do something different so that when we are celebrating, we are not, um, you know, really insulting people who were harmed by our presence.
0: Yeah, that's facts. Kevin, do you have any shout outs?
4: Shout out to Sister Cynthia. Uh, (laughs) That's my shout out right there. You know, she hasn't had much of an opportunity, you know, to just kind of get out and live her life because she's been taking care of others for so long and so you know she uh, took the leap and, and you know she didn't just go around the corner, she went to Africa.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know when so, I don't know what I'll say to that, I a say new life.
4: That. I say live. Samira. Yeah, that's right. Live.
0: Absolutely, get up and live. Yeah. I love to see it. Yeah, yeah Um absolutely. I I want to shout out uh the Vault Teen Center. Um, there is a mm-hmm. uh, grand opening of the the Chill and Grill. Is that what's the name of it, Donna? Grill and Chill. The Grill and Chill coming mm. up this Wednesday at
3: five o'clock, six o'clock. It's six o'clock on Wednesday. I won't be there. Um It's a ribbon cutting, but I yeah. teach at that time. But yeah. yes. Um, super shout out to Tanya Aho and the young people who wrote a grant to put in a brand new kitchen down there. It's super cool. So it's very nice.
0: Yeah, and cool. over the break I got to hang out with two graduates of The Vote mm-hmm. uh, who I had grown close to when they were students at ECN and I was still at ECN. Uh, Terry Edwards and Kareem Powell, my my guys. Our kids aren't kids anymore. Yeah. They're huge.
3: They're gi- giants.
0: <laughs> I walked into this restaurant. How, how serendipitous was that? <laughs> that was
3: crazy, I'm walking to the restaurant and there's Orlando, and I didn't see Orlando someone says, this guy's trying to reach you behind there and I see these two gigantic men, and so I just walked around because I didn't recognize them, all the facial, I had to look beyond the facial hair like, oh Terry (laughs) (laughs) you're a man now Um, But I walk around, there's Orlando, and so we took pictures, (laughs) and in these pictures, I look like (laughs) a little person. (laughs) Yeah, But yeah, I just felt very small, but it was so good to see them. Can we talk about Terry for a minute? Go ahead. Um, Terry, and thank you for bringing them up. Terry Mm -hmm. is, um, he was the first young person to ever join the Vault Teen Center. Um, Our first event, we um, took a a tour of kids. We took some young people to Ann Arbor. My son was at U of M, and he'd arranged this um, Saturday at U of M to introduce young people to um, the the university. And so I think we were supposed to meet up there at 9 and leave, and he was there at 7. He had to wait for somebody to open the gate, and he came in, and he said, this is my house. And he claimed it before it was ever built. Um and we watched him grow from a kind of sometimes obnoxious teenager as teenagers are right um who you know like loved to get attention and he was a lot of fun really uh, always life at the party to this young man who um graduated from high school um not, b- despite not knowing he would and then going to college he um started on the football team and certainly he's big enough to be a football player and he is now at Mississippi Valley State University. And he is in a senior year. He'll be graduating in May. And so I said, Terry, what are you going to do when you graduate? And he said, I'm going to graduate school. Wow. I've still got three years of football eligibility left. And so he won't even have to pay. And I just have to say, wow. to see somebody who knew he wanted to do something different with his life, Take all the opportunity everybody gave him, and we all gave him something because he was what kind of young person who was not going to let you forget he was there. Um, I feel like the East Side raised him, made sure he was okay, and then he did the rest. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently he's got um, football coaches and teachers at Michigan Valley, Mississippi Valley State who have been supporting him since he's been there, continuing the mentoring. But if you ever wonder why you get up and do work, and you see a young person who never thought they had a chance, have the chance of a lifetime, and they're still succeeding, it makes it all worth it. Mm -hmm. And Kareem has a baby.
4: Kareem
0: (laughs) is a dad. He's loving every... Every minute of it, Uh TJ asked to come on the podcast. He was like, "I want to come on the podcast. Why didn't, why didn't we bring him on?" And we, I said, "Absolutely, we will bring him on." He's still here in the city. So, when, when, how on. long?
3: How long is he going to be? He's here? He's here in the city
0: until the new year. So he's on break. So oh, we're bring we have him on. to bring him on. We <laughs> have to
3: bring him on. He is such a. He is. He's great. Right. He was. Remember when he did the video when we gave him the award? Yeah. And he was speaking. We were sitting there crying, crying. listening to what he was saying. Crying. He had us in straight up tears. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah. shout out to our young folks and adult folks now, man. Uh, Listen, we'll see you same time, same place next week. Until then, we want you to catch the wave.